Welcome to In the Arena, a show where entrepreneurs and leaders take us behind the headlines and into the biggest crises of their careers and lives and how they made it to the other side. I'm Jesse Janae, a startup founder and your host. Hi, listeners. Eric Thornburg here. After several episodes of Jesse Janae interviewing leaders from companies like Uber, Nasty Gal, and FDX about their biggest crucible moments and controversies, we had an opportunity to turn the tables and put Jesse on the hot seat. Jesse co-founded the packaging supply chain company at Lumi in 2012 and served as its CEO. In between raising a Series A and right before she set out to raise a Series B, she made a huge and sudden pivot, changing Lumi's business model, laying off 80% of the team, and making the decision to sell the company. Lumi ultimately got acquired by Nara. It worked out. Jesse gives us a play-by-play of her lowest moments during this period, a glimpse into her decision-making, and crystal-clear advice for other entrepreneurs making hard calls. It becomes a little awkward for me where I don't know when I should tell anyone. Should I tell people after I get a term sheet? Oh, wait, once you get a term sheet, you enter diligence, and diligence is really intense. Should I tell people once we get a sign-off, the diligence has gone well? Oh, wait, you know, once diligence has gone well, there's like a moment between that and when the deal is actually signed. Should I wait till the papers are signed? I couldn't find the answer to that question. <laughs> like it was really stressful for me. I just want to be clear. It wasn't like some easy decision because I, I realized I had to keep the pregnancy to myself, but I realized that I didn't know when to tell our investors and to tell the acquirer because it felt like at each juncture, I was still vulnerable to everyone judging this choice based on the pregnancy. These kinds of things you'll never ever think you'll have to do when you set out as a founder. Let's go in the arena with Jesse Janae. So Jesse, we're gonna do something a little bit different this, this episode. Instead of focusing on someone else's crucible moments, we are going to focus on yours. Nice. Welcome to In the Arena. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel so in it. You know, I feel so in the arena this time. Uh, no. I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited, and this is a fun way. Uh, we're going to do Eric at some point as well. It was a fun way for uh, hopefully people to get to know us a little better through the process. Totally, editor, take that part out where she just said we're going to do. I'm just kidding. Okay, so let's let's get right into the crucible okay. moment, which is summer 2021. You get a term sheet for your company, Lumi. At the same time, you also realize that the company isn't going in the direction that you want it to go. Take us to to that moment and tell us what happens from there. All right. So Lumi had raised a Series A in about um, around 2018. And so we're a few years on from that. And we're effectively in the process of raising a Series B. The fundraise was kind of fraught for me more so than I think investors saw when I was pitching because we had two parts of our business and I had waning confidence in the part that made most of the money. (laughs) There was a a managed services part of the business that wasn't pure SaaS software or pure marketplace like revenue where we actually had to employ people to do services. And that part of the business was making the bulk of the revenue. And so as I was out there pitching, investors were obviously most interested in talking about where the bulk of the revenue came from, even though it wasn't the part of the business I was the most excited about that I thought was going to be the like mode, uh, like a motor of the business in the decade going forward. And so 
what I realized, we were able to get a term sheet off of the business as it existed. But what I realized is that if I accepted money based on the premise of the business as I presented it in that fundraise, I was going to end up running a business that I didn't really believe in wholly. I was not going to be able to trim the services business in a more drastic way because it would really affect revenue, which you can't really do after you accept money on that premise. So it was a crucible moment in many ways. One, I had to face facts. Like I think as an entrepreneur, there's these moments where you realize that you've maybe built a monster a little bit. Like I built a business that was generating. It was generating income. We It was supporting our like 40 trending towards 50 employees. We weren't quite profitable, but it was like achievable with like continuing that business model. But the problem was I didn't believe in that business model. I didn't believe that business model was going to get us where we need to go. So I made the radical choice to tell our board that we were not going to proceed with finishing that fundraise. And the really difficult part was that we did not have enough money to not proceed with that fundraise. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like it wasn't, it wasn't like a reasonable choice. Like if we didn't fundraise, you would die. We couldn't support the team. Like, let's just put it that way. We couldn't support the team that we had. Uh, and we certainly couldn't trim revenue generating things and not fundraise. Like, like this whole portrait just stopped making sense. And how, how many employees do you have again? Like almost 50. Wow. Yeah. I, so many people's livelihoods like hang in the balance, yeah. right? When I'm thinking about this stuff. And there's another additional factor, which is I know that I'm pregnant again. And again, oh, because I had preg- been pregnant the year before. And, but I'm, I'm very early pregnant at this period. Like I I got pregnant in spring. And so no one knows yet, but I'm like early pregnant. And so I know I'm pregnant. I'm going to hold this fundraise. We're not going to have enough money. And I don't really have a plan to replace all these things. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm laughing now, but I was like crying myself to sleep. Like, like, I don't want to underplay this. Like, like I would go to bed with such dread about my lack of knowing what to do next that I would just like sob. (laughs) Like it was fucked up. Like it was like really, because I couldn't talk to people in the company. I was talking to my co-founder Stefan, but you can't tell other executives and stuff that you're wrestling with this. They want you to complete the fundraise. It's the only viable like path for the business as it stands. And so after really exploring every option, really confirming for myself through like data analysis in the company that I didn't believe that the services business was like a good strategic path forward. I made the call. I think Stefan and I, my co-founder were aligned in many things, but like this was tough for us too. Like it was, it wasn't like an immediate yes for him, like knowing that saying no to finishing the fundraise and telling the board that it was also like the first time in my entrepreneurial career where I feel like I didn't do what the board like wanted on the margins. There's always some things that you debate and people are like, Oh, I trust the CEO and whatever. But when the CEO says like, I'm not going to complete this round because I don't believe in pursuing that business model. And we'd have to, if I close this round and then I do not have a viable path to like support the number of employees that we have. That's like, a pretty big announcement. Like pe- people don't say bravo for your courage. Exactly. You know, it's like, people are like, 
okay, what's your plan? Like, it's like the rubber meets the road and people are just like, what now? Yeah. And so what now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I don't want my jovial nature about it now to like uh, betray how owner, like how extreme it was then and how upsetting it was for myself and everyone else then. But I told the board that we will not be finishing the round. We will not be even trying to finish the round because the premise of finishing the round is uh, on a poor foundation of this business that I don't believe has legs for the future. That I believe that the pure play marketplace is the only thing that has real utility in this industry and real like future, but it's not making the bulk of our revenue. And so I'm going to not finish the fundraise. In addition to that, I'm going to do a massive layoff that only retains the employees necessary to run the pure play marketplace, which was going from about 50 to like 10. And, and you couldn't do the round just to do the pure play marketplace because they weren't excited about that path? It's the majority of the revenue, like 90% plus of the revenue. And so it just becomes clear that, like, I guess there's a world where you could kind of do a bait and switch, like technically where you take the round and then you do this like drastic thing and cut most of the revenue. I just didn't feel like ethically and morally correct because the foundation upon which people are investing was like the revenue run rate and everything that we had at that time. So I just think it's like, I wouldn't do it that way. Totally. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you listened to my advice because I know you were going to do it, but then we talked and <laughs> <laughs> you were like, you were like, I don't have any problems with this ethically. No, no, I, I would never, I would never do that. I want someone to invest. I think as entrepreneurs, you can never guess everything. So your projections are always just to the best of your knowledge and stuff, but I wouldn't have someone invest on the premise that I'm going to do both business models and then like tell them right after, like, never mind. So t- take us to the moment when you, you realize that this was just what had to happen. You know, was it kind of a slow, you know, realization and you were in denial for a long time or it just hit you and then you said, fuck, I just have to like, take, take us yeah. to that moment when you decided this, this is what's happening. I think that it, it was in the process of raising the Series B. There was three different investors who took serious interest in the round. We got into like a pre-diligence with them and they had many questions, but they almost 100% of the questions were about the managed services business because it was generating most of the revenue. And I realized that the nature of their questions, the things they were interested in, the things they were interested in what I was going to do with the managed services business over the next several years, because that's where the revenue was at the time, that like I felt as though even the pre-diligence questions were like taking me off path. I was like, this is not the problem. Like, like I'm, we're not, I don't even want to work on this. Like even working on answering the pre-diligence questions that you want to know about the business feels like a waste of the time, waste of time, because it's like not where the business should go. I don't think it's where the business is like destined to go. And I would try to, on the margins, explain that to some of the investors just to kind of like cajole us back to center. And they would flatly state like, well, that's where the revenue is. That's like all our questions are going to be about where the revenue is. So I think it just like in that process, I realized like, this is not good. I'm setting myself up for failure to like, it started feeling like a version of pretend. And I think when you feel that as an entrepreneur, like it's not like a fake it till you make it because like, it's like a fake it until you need to fake it some more and then fake it some more. Like you can't have a fundamental misalignment with your investors like that, where the thing that interests them 
And the thing that interests you is like a Venn diagram that's two different circles. Yeah. And so you, you realize this, you tell the board and does the board just let you do it? Or I don't, we don't have to get into this. Yeah. It's too what, no, what, is, it's what, is, what happens then? Well, luckily our board, we never experienced any hostility from our board, any fundamental issues, just from a very human perspective. And the board actually has a responsibility to all shareholders and all employees and stuff. They were like, just really like, all right, please outline your plan from here. Like just with a level of urgency, like we really need to navigate this carefully together was I th- like, I think the vibe. And I, I, and I thought that was very fair. Like I thought they were very respectful, all things considered. So what I did was that, I mean, I outlined what I did and I didn't know. And unfortunately, like what I knew was we're going to do this big cut. It's going to buy us time to get the marketplace business completely settled. We're going to transition all of our managed customers into the marketplace model and help them thrive, which we did in short order. Uh, We executed the layoff in the summer very promptly. It was incredibly hard to do. I mean, it's incredibly hard to tell the majority of your team, like, you know, it's the game over. Like, we're just going to pursue marketplace only and we're keeping a skeleton crew. That's the message. And so effectively, it feels like you're letting everyone go. Like you're actually retaining a few people, but when you have like an almost 50 person team and then you go to 10, it feels like you like fared everyone, you know, because the 10 includes Stefan and I, I mean, it's just like very few people left. And so we just, I just laid out that plan for the board and let them know that there was only two paths forward, which were, we get completely self-sufficient off marketplace, which was viable with such a small team. Like it was like doable, but still had challenges. Or we get acquired and I just laid out that plan for them. And I told them from here, we're just going to take it as it comes. Hey, everybody. Eric here. We just launched a new podcast, The Limited Partner, where David Weisberg, head of venture capital, 10X Capital, and I pull back the curtains on the notoriously secretive world of venture through the lens of limited partners. Join us for conversations that are normally held in stealth. Whether you're looking to raise a fund, wanting to know how to evaluate which funds to back, or hear inside conversations between practitioners, subscribe to The Limited Partner on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Link is in the description. So were you depressed for like indefinitely? Like what is your mental state during this time? What's like the lowest low moment you remember during this time? I think... So Stefan was living in LA and I was living in Miami at the time. Stefan came out to visit Miami and in the span of time between when he scheduled the trip to when he arrived, we're talking about like a week or so, all of this kind of went down in my brain. And so from the time he booked the ticket, it was sort of like, yeah, come out, we'll work on the fundraise together. And then by the time he got out there and we were actually talking, it was like, hey, let's talk about rubber meeting the road and we're going to like shut down this huge business division, do a massive layoff. And oh, by the way, there's plenty of ways that this can like not work. And so let's talk about all the downside risk of if we don't get something right. You know, we did have venture debt, uh, which adds complexity to everything. Um, so, so I just think that that was a low point. Like the low point was when we had to meet in person it was kind of surreal. It's like, because every other time Stefan and I met from the beginning of Lumi, which is 2015 to that moment in 2021, 
we're always talking about the future. We're always talking about product builds. We're always talking about the next hire. We're always talking about something positive. And then this meeting is like a departure. It's like talking about more like the end of something, like the end of an era at minimum of like yeah. closing this thing down, closing the product line down at minimum. And so I just think that was a low point. It was just sad. It's sad to be with your co-founder and not talking about the big picture anymore. And to a degree we were because it was like, well, this is the only way for this extra cool thing, the pure marketplace to survive. And that's the thing we're truly excited about. So in a way there was like a glimmer of the big picture, but in a macro way, it was just a depressing conversation. It's like not our norm. And I think those were, I was literally like crying myself to sleep and stuff. And I was like early pregnant, which is just kind of like a rough time. You're like literally sick. You know, it's just like a, bleh, you know? Yeah. And when you have layoffs, was that your first time doing layoffs? Unfortunately, no. Um, I don't mean to rub it in. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we did a layoff early COVID, 2020, 2020, like Mar April, I think, like pretty soon after we heard about COVID, like we did a layoff to adjust for that uncertainty, like including such sad perfunctory things as like our in-person office manager was laid off because we were just like, okay, we have no idea when we're going back to the office. So we did a layoff, but it was not cut to the bone. It was like uh, seven people total or something then. So this was, I had never gotten on a call and we did an all hands because I didn't even know how else to do it. We did all hands where we said, we're making a dramatic change. The majority of the company is being laid off. And I, I can't remember the exact way we did it, but I believe we didn't want to leave mystery to it. And I believe we said like, if you have a meeting on your calendar for later today, or like there was something that we had already done where it's like, then you are laid off. Like, like just, we didn't want people to be on the call wondering, but we also wanted to address it as a whole team because it just was like, you don't say like, oh, we're doing a layoff, like TBD on the size when it's like 90% of the people. You just have to tell everyone that this is happening. I think the way we did was the opposite. We actually said, I think the people who were staying were pre-told that they had a job on the other side. And then we just said, if you on this call are not aware that you have a continued job, then you don't. Um, and then we still did individual calls with everyone. I'm not saying this is in lieu of individual, right. but we just wanted it to be really potently clear as a team call as well. Yeah. Just in terms of managing layoffs and that, like, is there anything you would do differently next time knowing how to do it now or would advise people like, what was your learning experience from, from the layoff process? I think that when you see people get slammed for layoffs, there's a wide variety of things that people do wrong, you know, purportedly do wrong. And I don't need to express any judgment on individual, like stupid things. But in general, when people are losing their jobs, they are immediately having thoughts about themselves. And effectively, I think the only macro thing to do wrong is talk about yourself. <laughs> just like, it's the one day to just like, you do not have personal needs. You do not have, it's literally not about you. You can explain in the most skeleton way your thinking so people feel like led in to that decision-making, but that is all you should do that references yourself at all in any fucking way because everything else is about those people and 
explaining exactly how much they're going to get in severance, exactly what their end date is, exactly when they're going to be taken off Slack, exactly how they can contact their other coworkers. People just want to know that information. And when you make it hard to find, or you talk about yourself and how you're feeling is when people usually are like, what the fuck? Yeah, that's well said. Let's fast forward a bit to, okay, you've made the layoff. You've got support from the, the, the board. You've got a plan. Then what happens? We make progress on the marketplace growth. Like, so there's like, so you asked about the darkest moment. Uh, uh, that was, I, I told you, one moment that was unexpectedly light was like, not the day after the layoff, and I forget what day of the week it was. It was like some midday week, midweek day. But the following Monday, when I get on a call with like 10 people, and that's the new team, and we're just building the rest of the pure play marketplace, that was like, unexpectedly fun. It's like unexpectedly fun to have a 10 person team after years of having a much larger team. It was like kind of skunkworks feeling. Um, we knew exactly what we had to do. There's no room for extra work. So you just do exactly what you need to do. Everyone's in the trenches together. So we do that and we make really great progress. We transition all of the customers from manage to, to marketplace. They start buying things in the marketplace. Uh, everything is like relatively positive. But I also realized that rationally, the business can't really raise again in the same way. Like you have to like have a recap type thinking. Like now that you've caught majority of the revenue, if you're going to try to raise another round, it's like trying to raise a seed round post series A. Like it's like, no. it's like these things don't really work and your cap tables don't really work like that. And so that makes me very seriously be like, we should work on being acquired. Like we should work on what if what we've built, this marketplace we've built is instead of a destination online, like a packaging marketplace is being a destination where someone comes and comes here and does this. What if this is incredible tool that is better as part of someone else's ecosystem. I think that takes quite a lot of entrepreneurial, like, um, like lack humility? of ego. Yeah, yeah, humility. Like humility. Like it's like you always want to be like, I know best. Like uh, my my product is the destination. It's the beginning. Yeah. It's the end of the internet. It's everything. But there's a, like a little bit of humility in being like, you know what? Does it make sense for a brand like Parachute Home? to have so many point solutions, including their packaging marketplace? Or does it make sense for them to have a company that they use for some of their e-com infrastructure and then they get to buy their packaging there too? Like maybe that is better for them. You know, like, like maybe that is a better user experience for that customer. And so I think that kind of thinking made me much more genuinely open to joining forces with someone and we started getting introductions. We, we, we said that to the board uh, and our investors, starting getting introductions. And one of those introductions panned out into a full-blown acquisition. And before we finish that story, I think it might be nice to um, zoom out to like just what Lumi was and how we got there yeah. for a sec. Sure. Stefan and I were super geeks who went to design school together, studied product design and really realized that there was a hole in the market for how people who loved good design approach packaging, packaging specifically for e-commerce. And so all of those, all of the beautiful packaging and the return kit for Warby Parker and the, you know, special garment bag that ships, you know, back and forth for Rent the Runway and a lot of these packaging innovations, it's like there was no consolidated place 
for e-commerce brands to actually go work with these manufacturers and actually buy things. Uh, the packaging industry was extremely fragmented. Uh, and it was really like a picks and shovels business for like the gold rush was e-commerce. And it's a picks and shovels business, which is like, if you're going to start an e-commerce brand, you need to ship something from point A to point B, and we're going to sell you the packaging. And I found that mission to be incredibly motivating, like kind of selling picks, pickaxes and stuff in a gold rush, gold rush being the e-commerce space. Uh, and I think our business trajectory really charted to everyone's excitement over direct-to-consumer and e-commerce. And, and I think that created some interesting things for us during COVID because everyone's interest in e-commerce actually surged during COVID, which actually created an environment where we could get a term sheet and, and different stuff and possibly fundraise. But I think what we know now is that that energy didn't continue fully. And I think I was feeling that in 2021 that... Ultimately, you want to sell pickaxes and shovels in a gold rush, but not not in a gold rush. <laughs> like, like you know, it's like, um, and we had built something real and tangible, but was it a destination on the internet? Was it something transformative for the customer or was it a tool that could be better, you know, um, as part of something else? So that's just a little bit of background, but... I still am really geeky about packaging and love the concept of bringing manufacturing capabilities online uh, for people to find online instead of having to use a bunch of brokers and like old fashioned tactics. But yeah, that just kind of brings us to the environment and mood of 2021 and me realizing too that the best business model was the pure play, genuine addition to like kind of like internet tech stack as opposed to just like helping people buy packaging with services. Yeah. That's helpful context. I'm curious if even at a high level, you'd be open to talking about on the founder side, just the the acquisition process, because it's a huge grind. And it's also a total black box to most people. It's like, okay, you decide to get get acquired or to try to get acquired. Is it like, you know, raising a bridge round? Are you just kissing a lot of frogs? T take us through even at a high level, what that experience is like. There's an adage that companies are bought, not sold. And that adage is really fucking unhelpful when you're trying to sell your company, <laughs> right? Like, like it's yeah. like, um, like people say that and you're like, cool. Like, like it, it creates a sensation of like, you, as an entrepreneur, you're just supposed to walk around waiting for that, uh, Instagram $1 billion offer from Zuck or whatever. Like not all of us could just walk around waiting for our lives to be transformed in some way by some inbound offer. And it does happen. And those can be transformative opportunities. But I just find the advice around being acquired or merging with another company to be like very unhelpful tactically. Tactically, what does it look like when you actually do think that might be the best path for your company? Tactically, for me, it looked like creating as much surface area for someone to come to that realization as humanly possible. We started many conversations on the premise that we had made this big change to the business that we really believed in. And we were looking for partners and or strategic investors who were into this future for the business to talk to. And so it was kind of like a mood change of like, I'm no longer interested in raising a series B based on the old business. That's over. We're still interested in talking to partners who could possibly help us along in this new journey and or strategically invest 
to help us along in this new journey. And I guess what I'm saying is like using that as a conversation starter, we opened many new conversation threads, many new conversation threads with corp dev teams who have those conversations. And the reality is we're having a conversation with a corp dev team about maybe doing partnership stuff, maybe strategic investing. The subtext is, of course, you're also talking about maybe being acquired. Like, of course you are. It's a corp dev team. <laughs> like, um, and so, but I just think that basically you, for us, what, what I guess worked effectively was being creatively open-minded to the fact that it might not be an acquisition conversation. It might be that the best path forward was a strategic partnership that gave us more capital to work with, uh, some kind of exclusive use of something, some piece of the marketplace that gave us more um, resource or volume on the marketplace. Uh, and I, I think, so I guess our own open-mindedness of not just going out and saying, hey, want to buy us? Hey, want to buy us? Created many more valid conversations. And one of those did lead to a full-blown acquisition. Totally. So, so you mentioned that you're pregnant. You're going through this acquisition process. H how does this all play out? Yeah. Being pregnant is like the biggest ticking clock. TikTok. You know, yeah. <laughs> that you can have like inside your body. So I was due January 1st. I was due on New Year's. And <laughs> we do this, we do our layoff in July. I, I tell the board, like we make this decision not to do the fundraise and all this dramatic stuff about the business, like June, I think the layoff is July. Uh, and Did then you tell like, the board about your pregnancy? No. <laughs> I I don't know. Like, this is a good question. I'm willing to like put myself on the hot seat, which is like, do I have a fiduciary responsibility to tell the board that during that moment, I chose not to because one, at that time, the pregnancy is still pretty early. So there's a little bit of like, I'm not telling anyone. I don't even know if I told my family. So there's a little bit of that. But the other part is, to be very honest, I don't want the response to be assuming that I'm doing this decision because I'm pregnant. Because I really think that it's the opposite. In my brain, I'm thinking... I would be even more open to these crazy choices if I wasn't pregnant. Doing it pregnant is even crazier. Like, you know, because I have a ticking clock and stuff like that. So I just didn't want it to be smooshed together. So the board doesn't know. Then something happens that I would say goes further than I expect, which is after we get into some legitimate acquisition conversations in fall, it becomes a little awkward for me where I don't know when I should tell anyone. Should I tell people after I get a term sheet? oh, wait, once you get a term sheet, you enter diligence and diligence is really intense. Should I tell people once we get a sign off, the diligence has gone well? Oh, wait, you know, once diligence has gone well, there's like a moment between that and when the deal is actually signed. Should I wait till the papers are signed? So basically, I couldn't find the answer to that question. <laughs> like it was really stressful for me. I just want to be clear. It wasn't like some easy decision because I, I realized I had to keep the pregnancy to myself, but I realized that I didn't know when to tell our investors and to tell the acquirer that I was pregnant because it felt like at each juncture, I was still vulnerable to everyone judging this choice based on the pregnancy. And, and another thing that I felt uncomfortable about was when you sign a deal and then you're doing diligence, 
you're really trying to push a timeline. Like the, the lawyers on both sides, not one side, by the way, both sides would much prefer to have their long winter breaks and have plenty of time and push things out to the next year, yada, yada. So the last thing I wanted was everyone feeling like the reason that I was pushing on the timeline was because I was pregnant and just a bunch of pregnant Jesse stuff. So I just kept it to myself completely. And I pushed for the timeline and I pushed to get the deal done. And by the way, the acquirer, the CEO of the acquirer was right there with me, pushing on the timeline, wanting the deal to get done faster, pushing his side. So I felt like we were aligned. But Deals take longer than you think. Diligence takes longer than you think. Signing a document takes longer than you think. So by the time we actually signed the deal and announced the deal, the deal was announced on my birthday, I believe, December 13. And I was due two weeks later. And so by the time the deal was like announced, I was going to give birth in two weeks, which was like, I didn't think it would take that long. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I didn't think I'd take that long. So I did uh, tell the acquirer right around the time the deal was signed um, and we had to navigate maternity and everything else. But as weird and difficult as that process was, I can't say that I would do it differently because I don't want to know what I don't know. I don't want to know that the deal would have fallen apart because I was pregnant. I don't want to know that I would have gotten much harder questions about me during diligence because I was pregnant. Like, like, I don't know if these things are true, but I don't, I don't want to know because I just don't think pregnancy should be part of the business dialogue. So I made that choice. I just want to zoom out and reflect on the nine month period that was where you went through a decision to not take a fundraise, then a decision to, you know, let you a requirement to lay off the team or a majority of the team, then to get acquired to then go through the whole acquisition process all while you are pregnant and just to finish the process two weeks before you have the baby. That sounds like, and I know because I was probably there, it, it's an insane year for you to go yeah. through. That, was a, that is definitely a in the arena moment where you were, you were forged as a, as a fighter and I'm honored to, to do this podcast with you knowing what you've... Uh, knowing what you've been through. Thanks. It gave me tremendous amount of perspective. And as it relates to this podcast and our guests, every business story has so much going on behind it. Uh, you know, that that individual, the only the individual who is there doing the stuff can tell you. And I think my own experience of that and getting a deal done where no one knows I'm sitting behind the screen with my Zoom screen only showing like boobs up <laughs> because from boobs down, it's fucking it's crazy. <laughs> I'm just huge and whatever. And me being the person who knows that needs to psychologically handle that, handle myself, never told the team that got laid off I was pregnant, never made it about me or anything going on in my personal life. Me knowing how much of that I had to do, how much of putting my personal life to the side uh, to navigate these situations. It just makes me really inspired to do the show and hear other people's stories about what really was going on, what life was like for them when they were experiencing these stories because it's always more than meets, meets the eye. That, that's incredible. I hope that at some point I go through some hard moments too because it's been super smooth sailing the, the, whole, the whole time. <laughs> no, no, no. Eric is joking and we're going to do an Eric episode or multiple uh, yes. <laughs> when, when ready. So uh, we'll make sure that you get a chance to get to know him just as much as you know me. Awesome. Uh, thanks, right, Jesse. Until next time. Thanks for listening to In the Arena. 
If you enjoyed the conversation, please like, subscribe, and share by leaving us a review and telling everyone you know. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at inthearena underscore pod. We'd love your suggestions on who else has an intense experience to share. 